Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am Michael C. Bouchard, host of the Night Stalker podcast. This is episode number uh, 43. And what we're going to do is talk about the Gone Girl. The Gone Girl uh, was a novel written in uh, 2012. Uh, in 2014, uh, there was a movie uh, directed by uh, um, Gillian Flynn. It starred Rosemond Pike and Ben Affleck, uh, Amy Dunn, and Nicholas Dunn. <clears throat> now, some inaccuracies I found in Wikipedia. <clears throat> Wikipedia, <clears throat> the Gone Girl isn't based on any true story or any one particular crime. That is false. The Gone Girl is based on <clears throat> the disappearance of Joan Risch, Joan Carolyn Risch, from uh, Lincoln, Massachusetts on October 24th, 1961. Lincoln Police case number 6162. Um, so already, um, they also write that there's some conflicting details. It's hard to ignore the parallels between Dunn's and the real life. Uh, Pedersons, Pedersons were no part of this um, this book, um, but let's talk about the book itself. The book, the new, the real book, the real book, is the di- disappearance of Joan Risch, Joan Carolyn Risch, case sixty one sixty two. There is also a subliner that says uh, masquerade on it. <clears throat> now, in re- in real life. Um, I'm just trying to get this thing from freaking out here for a second. For some reason, my uh, my web page here that I'm looking at wants to just freak out. I don't know why, but <clears throat> Rosemond Pike was really portraying uh, Joan Carolyn Risch, Ben Affleck, Nicholas Dunn. His character Nicholas Dunn was actually uh, playing. Um, <clears throat> Martin Risch. The case is a really interesting case. If you look up Joan Risch, um, the first thing that the first thing that's going to come up uh, are pictures of this crime scene where there's blood on the kitchen floor, um, <clears throat> a large a large quantity, and in fact that large quantity was only uh, um, 250 uh, milligrams of blood. Which is under a half pint, pint which uh, wouldn't even put a person into uh, shock. Keep that in mind. <clears throat> so, the basic gist of the story goes is Martin Risch had left for a business appointment at um, about 7 o'clock in the morning. He took a flight to New York. <clears throat> uh, Ended up staying at a hotel in New York throughout the whole um, incident, case, whatever we want to call it. Um, he, he was seen in New York. Um, so there you, there you have it. He was, um, he has an alibi, a credible alibi. Now, most of the podcasts, 
if we kind of regress, they, they refer to a suspicious fire <clears throat> when Joan Rich was about 10 years old where um, her mother and, and father had both, both uh, died. And <clears throat> it seems to me that there's an inference that, that Joan, a 10-year-old girl, was responsible for the um, starting the fire. Again, another uh, misleading fact um, perpetuated by podcasters and article writers. In fact, Joan Rich, on the day of the fire, was actually in Brooklyn, New York, with her grandmother. I was able to review the notes by the uh, the fire marshal, and what had happened was, um, and many of you will know this, the older type fuse systems, when a fuse used to go out, um, you could put a penny in there and it would it would complete the circuit. Well, this is what happened uh, in the Rich case. Um, they had they had jumped the uh, the fuse panel with a, a penny. Uh, the uh, plug-in socket behind the couch overloaded because it wasn't a fuse, it didn't blow out. Uh, hence setting the living room couch on fire and <clears throat> so on and so forth. The apartment fills up with smoke. Um, the Joan Rich's father passes away uh, in the bedroom, the mother passes away in the kitchen. Uh, there is no link between uh, Joan Rich and the fire. Like I said, that was something that was uh, a misleading fact. And as you know, I'm uh, pretty critical on uh, podcasters and uh, <clears throat> evidence that they uh, they throw out there, which is misleading. Uh, assumptions. Now, in Joan's case, uh, she was taken in um, by relatives, the Nestrix, and as Joan uh, grew up, she had been molested by the uh, the older adult in the family, uh, the father. The last name Nestrick. So, where does this link into the 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 uh, this bloody crime scene uh, years later? Well, they had thought that he was a uh, a suspect, possibly a suspect, uh, maybe fearing that he would. Um, As someone to find out about the uh, him molesting Joan. One interesting thing was though when Joan moved out of the house when she had gone to college, um, her and the uh, Nestrick family kept in con con constant uh, communication by letter, <clears throat> and I know because I've read all the letters. And which a lot of people don't realize is the reason the information I'm giving you 
is information that you're not going to hear anywhere else. But I have a copy of the 5,127-page 5, police report sitting at my desk. So what I'm telling you is fact. There's no guessing. There's no assumption. So let's let's advance to a day before before Joan's disappearance. According to the neighbors, um, Barbara Baker, uh, Barbara Barbara Baker, who lived directly across the street. Um, their, child, their children, Joan's uh, son and daughter, played with uh, Baker's uh, son and daughter, so they were they were familiar with each other. Um, so let's let's go to the day of the disappearance. The day of the disappearance, <clears throat> Joan takes Martin. Martin leaves. He's flying to New York. Joan leaves the her younger son with uh, Barbara Baker. Joan takes the daughter to a uh, dentist appointment downtown. Now there there were a lot of a lot of assumptions what had happened, but <clears throat> let me just say this. The dentist appointment. Um, I read the statements of the assistants working in there. I read the statements of the the dentist in there. <clears throat> um, so nothing mysterious or out of the ordinary happened at the dentist appointment. As a matter of fact, Joan had made a second uh, appointment at the dentist appointment for. <clears throat> fillings and what have you. She returns home. She picks up the son from the house, from Barbara, uh, Barbara Baker's house, goes back across the street, and Barbara Baker isn't really keeping track of what's going on. So, a short time later, Joan's uh, younger daughter walks up to the Baker house and uh, have, okay, let me just kind of regress there because I forgot an important point here. <coughs> so, Barbara, jo Joan uh, Rich goes to Barbara, Barbara Baker's house, takes the son, young son, goes back across the street. At that time, uh, Joan's daughter was still playing at the house, so there we have it. The younger daughter, about an hour later, walks across the street, is gone for about 15 minutes, comes back to the house, is standing on the front porch. 
So, Barbara Baker calls Joan's daughter in, and she says, what's going on? She says, the baby's upstairs crying. My mother's gone, and the kitchen is full of red paint. So, what you're led to believe, based on the crime scene photos that you will see, is that some type of struggle occurred at the house between Joan and someone. Now, Barbara Baker reports seeing um, possibly some someone carrying something red, a person, a person dressed in a, a trench coat carrying something red uh, in, in the driveway of Joan Rich's house. So, <clears throat> what that red thing happened to be, and there's a lot of uh, misleading facts about that, is some people thought it was a um, Joan's body, uh, it was blood. It wasn't. It was actually <clears throat> the younger son's, the younger son had a, a red jacket, and he was observed by um, one of the Baker children uh, running out to the yard, in the front yard, towards the road with Joan chasing him. So <clears throat> that's a wash. That's a wash right there. That's a piece of evidence that has no significance to the case. The next, the next big piece of evidence is this trash can they show you. The trash can has, is in the center of the kitchen and it has a bloody uh, phone receiver and wire on the top of it. So, <clears throat> here's where it gets interesting. And you're going to see what I'm talking about as we go on. So, if we take a look at the garbage can. The garbage can had food debris in it. An empty liquor bottle. And uh, several beer bottles. So, there was always this uh, theory somewhere out there. Uh, not sure created this idea, but that Joan Rich had um, <clears throat> maybe had a party at the house. Uh, maybe whoever did this uh, was drinking, blah, 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 all that kind of nonsense. Well, if you break the, the, the stratigraphy of the um, interior of the garbage can, you had the beer bottles underneath the liquor bottle. Martin Risch, while being questioned, said that he left the liquor bottle in the garbage can the night prior, which would be October 23rd. So, which meant if the, the, the liquor bottle was on top, the two um, or three whatever beer bottles had to be there prior. So, Upon listening to his uh, 
interview, he had friends over the house the weekend prior drinking beer. So as we see the stratigraphy is starting to rule out any of the links to this garbage can. Now, the funny thing is, prior to Joan's disappearance, <clears throat> she had gone to the local library and taken out over a course of time 25 books. Now, the books all had to do with faking your disappearance, um, um, creating a crime scene, so on and so forth. This is where the original 2012 novel manifested. They, could say, they can say that, no, it didn't, but yes, it is. If you... If you read the book she was reading and the um, the whole compilation of uh, the book she was reading uh, and all all of the, the narratives and um, everything else fit into a, a really clean picture of what happened, um, what she was looking at. Hence, the Gone Girl. Uh, kind of um, an origin, let's say a datum point, an origination point for the, the term Gone Girl. The interesting thing was, they say there were no verifiable <clears throat> bloody footprints or um, fingerprints. That's not true. Uh, there was actual, there was only one fingerprint on the phone and that belonged to Martin Risch. However, the phone was bloody. So if Martin Risch was in New York, how did his bloody fingerprints get onto, a, a bloody fingerprint get onto the phone receiver? Well, one of the books that Joan was reading showed how to transfer a fingerprint from one location to another. So, you see where I'm going with this? So think about it. This vicious attack occurs. Now, this vicious attack occurs. We're going to talk about other things after this, but the crime scene, there's a whole bunch of blood in the, um, the kitchen. If you look at the kitchen doors, cabinet doors, there's no bloody handprints. There's no bloody anything, anywhere. So, if this was such a struggle, a fight, how did it occur that nobody leaned with bloody hands, bloody feet? How, how did it occur that no one bumped up against the perfectly white um, set of cabinets which basically surrounded the, the kitchen? Furthermore, there were a set of uh, knives sitting directly on the counter, about a dozen knives in the knife block. None of them were taken out. Okay, so we have, we have this one garbage can placed in the center with a bloody, um, bloody fingerprint on the receiver. 
made by a person who wasn't there. So you see kind of where I'm leading with this. Now, if you look at the, the blood smears, the blood smears go in three elliptical different angles, which doesn't really make sense. Because if a person is bloody and dragging themselves, there wouldn't be elliptical patterns. It would be a straight pattern or a zigzag pattern, but it would be three independent elliptical patterns going in different directions. Now, there were blood droplets, droplets going up the stairs to the baby's room where the baby was found crying. <clears throat> Again, we have something that doesn't make sense. So how are you losing such a large quantity of blood in the kitchen and you're walking up the stairs only producing two drops, two droplets, and a droplet in the bedroom? When, it, when in fact, if you walked upstairs, the the exertion would cause your heart to accelerate, which would mean more blood would come out. So then again, we have this, this um, pattern of inconsistency. Now, what I found, which the FBI did not find, <clears throat> I took out, I was looking at all the photos, I took out a magnifying loop. And on the wall in the, bed, the bedroom, there was what, what represented high impact splatter. However, when you look at the high impact splatter closely, when blood travels in a direction and it hits something, it leaves a little trailer, kind of like a little tadpole. It looks like a little tadpole, but they all go in the same direction. These weren't going in the same directions. So what could have caused that? Well, how about blood on your finger, your fingertips, and you flicking it? Okay. Uh, <clears throat> when people went down there, they said, oh, well, there's a, a book, a telephone book that had been knocked over and it was open to the, uh, at that time, for you who are familiar with phone books, it was open to the uh, emergency response or 911 page. Well, what they didn't tell you is that <clears throat> Barbara Baker not only went in the house once, but she actually entered the house three times. And she knocked the book over. It was sitting on the counter. She knocked it over. So the book and the 911 page has absolutely no link or significance in the case. Um, then she took a neighbor into the house. Okay. So now the crime scene has been completely contaminated. Um... But then again, <clears throat> okay, so, but we have all this blood. Now, suspiciously, a woman dressed in a three-quarter length jacket was seen walking on Route 2A <clears throat> and Route uh, 128, which is 95 South now, um, at two different locations. And the woman looked... Like maybe she had blood on her, maybe she was distressed, 
Um, so what does this have to do? Well, if you're familiar with deflection techniques, a way to you know confuse people is to stage something so it looks like you are in one place or another place. However, here's the problem. <clears throat> if she had sustained such a significant injury, how would she have walked that far? The total route was about 14.9 miles. Um, and she happened to make those 14.9 miles in just over an hour. Most people can't walk three miles in an hour. So how is an injured person bleeding like that going to be um, in two places that are 14 miles apart in under a little over an hour? She's not. Plus there was a blue um, station wagon that several people had reported saying, you don't see this in any of the podcasts or any of this stuff. <clears throat> um, during court testimony or during a, a hearing, uh, Barbara Baker said she had seen a, um, a tan colored car parked at the Martin house every once in a while. Usually stayed there for about 20 minutes. Didn't see the operator. Driver, I don't believe that, but she, she stated she didn't see the operator. So, somebody comes over to your house for 15, 20 minutes, what do you think? You know, it's not hard to figure it out. Um, Joan Rich on that day had been talking to uh, a friend of hers uh, and um, the friend had asked um, Joan if she was going to make it to the uh, it would have been the 1962 class reunion and Joan said no because she planned on having a baby by then so <clears throat> Martin Rich said that Joan Rich wasn't pregnant. However, if you take um, June 1962 and subtract October of 1961, you have exactly nine months. Just saying. Might be something to think about. Um, so, throughout this, um, there's a lot of telltale signs that uh, this event really didn't occur. Uh, one of the most, <clears throat> one of the better um, roadblocks was that Martin Rich obviously uh, had been taking care of the um, the children, and. Uh, He had, he had a, uh, I guess, a nanny helping him. And the nanny re receives a phone call from a person, female, uh, asking if um, there was a, a nickname she had uh, that was given to her by her, her husband and her aunt. 
I forgot what the nickname was, but nobody else knew that nickname. Nobody else used it. Nobody else knew about it. This female on the other end did. Now, one who would know the house number? <clears throat> and then, who would know this nickname that... Um, Only two people would know her husband and this uh, this this uh, aunt kind of strange right well maybe it's not strange maybe it was a said maybe it was guilt so <clears throat> the search went on search went on for years and years and years and uh, today <clears throat> Joan Rish is still listed as a missing uh, person uh, a missing endangered person. Uh, she was 32 at the time, 32 years old at the time of her disappearance. Um, would I say that um, a crime had been committed? No, I don't believe so. There's too much evidence, um, basically suggesting the complete opposite. But if you want to read a complete book about it, a real book about it. You can go on to um, Amazon, and the book is The Disappearance of Joan Rish, Joan Carolyn Rish, Case 6162. Uh, it's about 400 pages. It is probably the only book that's actually accurate because it was written off the uh, police file. It was... Um, written by somebody who has been involved in many investigations and if you're really interested in the Gone Girl this is the book to read so with that being what it is um, I don't believe Joan Rish was killed, kidnapped, abducted, whatever you want to consider it I believe Joan Rish ran off and uh, and is it, you know, people are shocked, oh my God, she left two kids there, but come on folks, this is an everyday event in the world today. People just walk away from their lives and uh, grab new identities and <clears throat> carry on. But with that being the case, I am Michael C. Bouchard, the host of the Night Stalker podcast, and we will be talking to you uh, somewhere down the road.